This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. Today's show is sponsored by Chalmers Big and Tall. The year is 1987. And those aren't podcasts. The movie, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. everyone and welcome to Unspooled, where we unspool the greatest films to see if they are classics or just remembered that way. I am joined by Amy Nicholson, a film critic who writes for the New York Times. And I am joined by Paul Shear, a Wheel of Fortune champion. Yes. And a semi-finalist on Celebrity Pickleball. Yeah, you know, look, Amy, we didn't win the finals, but I was just happy to get into that semifinal round. It's It was a, a very big uh, boost to my own ego. Mind of a champion, Paul. Mind of a champion. <laughs> <laughs> um, Amy, we are talking about a movie that I think is maybe one of the best John Hughes films, but definitely one of the best buddy comedies ever made, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. A movie that is so beloved and so tied to Thanksgiving that I can't think of any other comedies that have tried to really give this movie a genuine run for its money in 35 years of dominating the Thanksgiving movie spot. But is this movie good because of the script or is it good because of the casting? I mean, I think that this movie really pulls out the personalities of Steve Martin and John Candy in a way that no other film has really done uh, ever since. Ugh, it pulls out the darkest sides of my own personalities, which is why it makes for a sort of terrifying, painful, and endearing watch. And we will finally get to the bottom of the question, what is up with Steve Martin's wife in this movie? Why is their relationship so strained? All of this and so much more. So let's... Attention, attention, everyone, unspool it. So Amy, the year is 1987, And John Hughes is on a giant hit streak. I mean, he has written 11 films in five years. We're talking about 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, Weird Science, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And those are the ones that he's directed, right? He's just knocking out movies. He is kind of unstoppable. Yeah, he is one of the biggest successes of the 80s. He was one of the people who's defining the 80s all of a sudden, out of nowhere. But... Everyone thinks of John Hughes as just this teen movie guy. And critics are starting to wonder, when is he going to grow up? So, for his next movie, John Hughes thinks back 
beyond his high school youth in Chicago. He thinks to his young adulthood in Chicago when he was an advertising copywriter. And when he had that job, he had to spend a ton of time flying back and forth to New York. And one Wednesday, he flies to New York at 7 a.m. for this 11 o'clock meeting. He has plans to catch the 5 p.m. flight home. But heavy winds at LaGuardia delay his flight. He's got a crash in New York. Then the next day he gets there, he's on standby. And then that flight is delayed because there's now snowstorms in Chicago. And then finally he gets on a plane, but then that plane gets diverted to Des Moines and then Des Moines gets snowed in. So then the plane gets diverted to Denver. And then John is like, I'm not getting off this plane in Denver. It's cold. He heard the plane was going to Phoenix. He's like, take me to Phoenix. Then at least Phoenix is warm. In short, John Hughes flew to New York on a Wednesday at 7 a.m., thought he would be home that night, does not get back until Monday. And for those of you who are John Hughes fans, you know that travel plays a large part in his, like, oeuvre. I mean, from National Lampoon's Vacation to Home Alone, and of course, the movie we're talking about today, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, it is a movie that encapsulates every frustration of traveling in one, I think, kind of perfect piece. Does it does, and I think in this movie where he like funnels his travel angst that we're going to see again and again and again. I mean, I'm just thinking about Catherine O'Hara trying to get home to her son and home alone. This yeah. movie becomes declared his first truly grown up film because it stars grown ups. You know, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles stars Steve Martin as Neil Page. Neil is basically John Hughes. He's an uptight advertising executive trying to get home from New York to Chicago in time for Thanksgiving. And then there's John Candy. He plays Del Griffith. He's like this loud mouth, working class, shower curtain ring salesman. That's a job. Um, and his very existence seems to just curse Neil and Neil's sophisticated upper class bliss. First, Del's trunk makes him miss his taxi cab. Then Del steals his other taxi cab. Then he gets stuffed in a middle seat next to Del. And then Del and Neil are forced to hit the road together when all of their flights are canceled and they have to share cheap motels and diner breakfasts. They try to get home with trains and buses and hitchhiking and rental cars, rental cars that have been set on fire and are definitely not road safe. And then slowly, gradually, this odd couple sort of kind of bonds. Take a listen. During holiday travel, some people get delirious. Some get delayed. And some get <laughs> Del Griffin. American Light and Fixture, Director of Sales, Shower Curtain Ring Division. Neil Page got all three. I was on my way home to spend a nice holiday with my family. Instead, I'm in a motel bed with a stranger. So instead of Thanksgiving with his family, he's spending three days with the turkey. Two happy clams just whistling down the road. Flintstones, meet the Flintstones, they're the Martoni family. Paramount Pictures presents... Wilma! Steve Martin. You ever been to Hawaii? Yeah. You see Don Ho while you were there? See the second show, that's the best one. Is that right? Yeah. John Candy. Why are you holding my hand? Where's your other hand? Between two pillows. Those aren't pillows. In a new film by John Hughes. Plane, trains, and automobiles. See that Bears game last week? Yeah, hell of a game, hell of a game. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was released November 25th, 1987, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And, uh, I mean, it's a perfect Thanksgiving film. It truly is. And it was, you know, received not as like a perfect movie, but as like pretty darn good. 
people were like, this is fine. We like it. And the box office was like, yeah, this is fine. We like it. Good for you, John Hughes. But over the years, it has gone from, ah, you're all right, to beloved. I mean, not just as a turning point in John Hughes's career, but as this turning point in John Candy's career too, because this is really the movie where he transitions from like weirdo space balls guy to everyone's <laughs> favorite uncle, which is who he was to me. Yeah, and I think it's due to the fact that John Hughes knew how to tap into the happy, funny, weird side of John Candy, but also to kind of plumb the depths of his sadness. And I've seen movies with John Candy where he went a little bit more in the sad direction. It doesn't really work as well. And I've seen movies where he went a little bit too much in the SCTV direction, and it it also doesn't kind of work that well. That's why I think these John Hughes, John Candy films are perfect. And I just, oh, I wish I would have seen more of them. Apparently, he wrote like 25 movies for John Candy that never got made. I mean, he did make Uncle Buck, Only the Lonely and The Great Outdoors. Those were made, but there are so many more out there that he wanted to do. Uh, I would have loved to have seen that partnership continue to blossom. Me too. I th- Uncle Buck to me is my Mary Poppins. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I mean Uncle Buck sure. is one of one of the best. I mean, these movies really just connected me to this man. I mean, he really, I remember being so upset that I couldn't see planes, trains, and automobiles in the theater because it was R. And I love John Candy so much. How could you do this? How could you prevent me from seeing uh, the person that I want so badly? It wasn't like Eddie Murphy. It was like, no, I can't see John Candy. He's supposed to be for me. <laughs> Well, he wasn't. He wasn't. I know. But you can have him now. But <laughs> you at least probably could hear the number one song that was on the radio the week that Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was released on November 25th, 1987. The hit song on the charts was Billy Idol wailing about a type of transportation that is not featured in the film. It's not planes. It's not trains. It's not automobiles. It's not automobiles that have been set on fire. It is Billy Idol talking about how much he wants to ride your pony. That is a great song, but I'm thinking there could have been another number one song, potentially, in the running, if it was allowed to happen. And that would have been Elton John's theme for Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Okay, so let me tell you about this. Elton John and lyricist Gary Osborne were commissioned to compose the theme song for the film. And they had nearly completed writing it when just two days before they were to record it, Paramount Pictures issued a last-minute demand that they wanted the master, the song's master, be the property of the studio. Now, Elton's company, Polygram, wouldn't allow this because he was under a contractual obligation to give Polygram rights to all of his released music. So Paramount and Polygram could not reach a deal. And in an impasse, uh, they withdrew from the project. And they licensed Paul Young's Every Time You Go Away as the movie's theme song. And Elton's song was never recorded. And as I, far as I know, uh, I don't think he's ever talked about it or played it out loud. I mean, have you heard if this song has ever seen the light of day? I went on a rabbit hole about this because I was like, I want to find this song. This song must exist. It must have slipped out. It's been, what, 35 years since Planes, Trains, and Automobiles came out? Yeah. Surely. Elton has let slip whatever his banger was for planes, trains, and automobiles. But no, the most I could find 
is that there's an Elton John song from the early 2000s that I want to imagine is his like reworked planes, trains, and automobile song, but he doesn't actually say it. So he did a song called This Train Don't Stop There Anymore. I used to be the man express All steam and whistles heading west Picking up my pain from door to door Riding on the storyline Furnace burning over time But this train don't stop This train don't stop That's my conspiracy theory. <laughs> I, I like it. We've got to ask him. I mean, he was just here in Los Angeles at Dodger Stadium the other night. If only I could have held up a sign asking him, play the Planes, Trains, Automobiles song. We, should, we should start a campaign. I mean, I guess Let's he's saying he's him. retiring now. I don't know if I believe him. Do you believe him? Is he retiring? I feel like musicians don't retire. They just do month-long residencies in Las Vegas. I would go to that. I would go to that. Oh, 100%. He's already done it once before. I do want to talk to you a little bit, though, before we get into this movie, because I do have a lot of feelings about it. Something you said early on about the perception of John Hughes being a guy who writes kids stuff or teen stuff. And I think there's some truth to that in the sense that he was, as a director, behind some of these really big movies of the 80s, right? These big uh, films. But as a writer... You know, he also was writing movies like Mr. Mom, which is decidedly not a kid's movie. You know, he wrote National Lampoon's Vacation and uh, European Vacation. You know, he was doing things that were adult, class reunion. But it's so funny how because he had like these three giant hits, you know, 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, Oh, I guess Weird Science, Pretty in Pink, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I mean, there's a lot. Some kind of wonderful. <laughs> uh, they're all in a row. That like people are like, oh, now you write kids movies, but or teen movies. But he had written the equal amount of adult movies. But it's so interesting that he was getting pigeonholed, even though he had had success on these other films. Yeah, I mean, I usually wait and read our negative review at the end, but this ties into it. Like even when this film came out, one of the only negative reviews could only see a John Hughes film through the filter of his teenage movies. It was the New York Times. And they just wrote, you know, when Mr. Hughes works with non-teenage characters, he has smaller reserves of colloquial humor upon which to draw. And he must conceive of this film's adult characters as lost adolescents. And he seems to regard their mature status as a terrible burden that they must with luck be able to shed. And he just was like, he even like went through, this critic went through like the dialogue and thought that it was almost written for a teenager and trying to kind of make it sound no. grown up. He was like, yeah, he said like when Steve Martin says, complains that hanging out with uh, John Candy is like, quote, going on a date with a chatty Kathy doll, that he yeah. says that's a line a teenager would deliver, not this No, one. it isn't because they're not playing with chatty <laughs> Kathy dolls. That's a that's an older, <laughs> I, I, I think that he does something so interesting here in this movie, which is really captures the essence of Steve Martin, as well as we already talked about him capturing the essence of John Candy. But Steve Martin on film, I think, has been up until this point a lot more lovable, a lot more kind. 
This movie is cynical. This movie is dark. And I think that everything I know about Steve Martin is he's incredibly biting. He's incredibly smart. And this feels to me very much like a heightened version of Steve Martin. It's not the same Steve Martin that we had seen time and time again. And that's one of the reasons that I love it. Like, And why it sits apart from other John Hughes movies in the sense that our main character, our, you know, our... The, the hero of the movie, if you will, is kind of a dick. Okay, wait, I have a couple of points about this. I have a question, first mm-hmm. and foremost. But first I have a critique, which is that Steve Martin has said that this character of Neil is the first time he felt like he ever played a real person on screen. That yeah. up until then, he had only ever played, like, caricatures, to which I want to say, you are very wrong, Steve Martin. Uh-oh, you were Penny's the lead of my favorite movie, Pennies uh-huh. from Heaven, which came out six <laughs> years before this. And you are very much a real person. And then such a great, complicated character. But, um, so, don't, so don't sell yourself short, Steve Martin. However, I see your compliment that you're giving this film. I take it. My question for you is, when you watch this movie... Do you identify with John Candy or do you identify with Steve Martin? Like, I watch this movie and I'm like, oh, I really feel you, Steve Martin. But, but where is your, where is your, where is your brain? Who is your protagonist here? Well, I do believe that this movie is one of the best buddy movies ever made. And I think the reason why it is, is because at certain points, you can feel for both characters. Like, I believe as I get older I see the Steve Martin side a little bit better. Of course, when I was younger, I loved the John Candy side, but they are both sympathetic I have characters. I into the Martin. Is well, I just think that they both have reasons to, to be. Like, one isn't just a hard-edged person. Like, I think it's a actually very balanced portrayal. Like, when you come down to it, this movie is about two strangers, and John Candy, like, if you were to put yourself in these situations, he'd be a as annoying as hell. Now, it's incredibly funny to watch, but I get why Steve Martin acts the way he does. And I think I think one of the problems with movies like this that we've seen after this is like, just leave, get out of there. And this movie does a great job of forcing these characters together time and time again. And one of the things that's really redeeming about Steve Martin, even though he's a little bit cynical, is that he does have a heart. Like he wants to get home to his kids and there's that moment where the train breaks down and he sees John Candy struggling with that giant trunk. And he doesn't want to help him, but he's a good guy. And he's like, I'll help him. Like he's, you know, that to me is what makes this movie actually kind of a perfect film. It's he's wrestling with like, I don't really want to be with this guy, but I also know that I'm a little bit of a dick. I've been a dick. I'm like, he's constantly trying to get out of it. But that moment to me, so early on in the film, it's not happening in the third act. It's, it shows us, Steve's a good guy. Like Neil Page is a good guy. And I think that that moment to me is the reason why the entire film works because it lets you sit on either side, depending on the situation. You know, they both are smart. They're both, you know, they're both interesting. They both represent sides of us. And I think that this movie does a great job of constantly keeping that in the balance. I love that you singled out that scene. Because to me, that scene is the heart of this movie too. And it's such a little small bit. It's it's nonverbal. Yeah. You know, it's just like one man looking at another man 
and then being like, I'm going to help that man. And I love that because I feel like a lot of comedy tends to be based in meanness. Oh, look at this person do something right. sort of mean, you know, oh, blah, blah, blah. that's sort of snarky and funny, you know. And and what I love about John Hughes is he finds the moments in which humans are nice to each other. You know, like there's there's a lot of selfishness and meanness in there, but he he also, I think, believes that human nature at some level can't help wanting to be kind. In those tiny little bits of seeing Martin be like, well, I have made enough of a bond with this man that I want to do the right thing, even though it's all over his face. That's not because he's like a hero. He feels guilty more than anything, but that he will rise to the occasion. Because I want to say, sometimes I think this movie lets John Candy off the hook for being pretty monstrous. Like one of their first encounters, you know, beyond the taxi cab, which I excuse, he didn't know he was coming beyond, you know, being a guy who takes up a lot of seat in the airplane. He can't help that. Um, is when they go to the hotel, motel, I suppose, Steve Martin takes a shower and he sees that John Candy has used all of the towels. And I have to say, as much as this movie pretends that John Candy is a lovely sweetheart, if you take all of the towels at some level, you are an oblivious dick. And I can't kind of get over the towels. Amy, I'm married to that. You're married to a towel person? I am married to... A person who, regardless of whatever hotel we're in, will use every single towel. I have to call down ahead of time to get extra towels and hide them in the room <laughs> so I will have a towel when it comes time for me to shower. And How is that possible? I, I, I don't know why. I kind of pride myself on using as few towels as possible. Me too. Yeah. I understand the space. I understand. And that's why I can go back and forth. And that's how I can understand this relationship. But my wife uses everything. Like she'll often leave me with one of those uh, like mini towels. It's not, not a washcloth. I guess it's called a hand towel. But it's like that's what I get left with. So I have to always be ahead of the game to make sure that I am protected. <laughs> Uh, from Where does she towel put all theft. the towels? I don't oh, get it's, towel they're people. all used. They're all used all over the place. Wow. One for hair, one for body, one for floor, another one for this. I don't yeah. even know. I don't even know. I mean, I am fascinated that I am dating a two towel guy. Like Adam has good hair. My boyfriend Adam yeah. has good hair, but he like he really dedicates a special towel to his hair. And I'm like, I love it. I have more hair than you, and I don't do that. And I find it fascinating that he always needs two towels. I mean, I can understand John Candy needing more than a normal person. He's got a lot of surface area to dry off. I understand. I'm very empathetic to that. Uh, But when you leave poor Steve Martin with a washcloth, you are a jerk. And so there's this tiny little bit of me that resents a moment later on in the motel scene when John Candy gives that, you know, they have their first fight, which is pretty hostile. And I think they're both making fair points. God, you're a tight ass. How'd you like a mouthful of teeth? Oh, and hostile, too. Nice personality combination. Hostile and intolerant. That's borderline criminal. Screw you. You spill beer all over the bed. You smoke. You, you, you mess up the bathroom. Well, who let you stay in the room? I even let you pay for it so you wouldn't feel like an intruder, which you most certainly are. Oh, oh I'm an intruder. Yes, you're an intruder. I was having a perfectly nice trip until you walked into my life. I walked into your life. Who was that who talked my ear off on the plane? Who was that? I'm curious. Well, who told you to book a room? I did, out of the goodness of my dumb old heart. Boy, you're an ungrateful jackass. Well, go ahead, sleep in the lobby, see if I care. I hope you wake up so stiff you can't even move. You're no saint. You got a free cab, you got a free room. And someone who'll listen to your boring stories. 
I mean, didn't you, didn't you notice on the plane when you started talking, eventually I started reading the vomit bag? And then the way that John Hughes and the composer resolve this fight is they let John Candy give that really touching speech, I Like Me, which I say, oh. I believe that that speech is valid. But what I don't believe is valid is when that composer puts that sentimental music underneath it at the end that turns John Candy from like guy sticking up for himself who also does like himself to tragic hero of this scene. That's a bridge too far. I'm not changing. I like, I like me. My wife likes me. My customers like me. Because I'm the real article. What you see is what you get. Because he stole all the towels. He stole all the towels. I think, okay, well, let's talk about that scene because that scene always makes me cry. Uh, And it may be a music cue, but I also believe you need this scene, the harshness of this scene. I think talking about what this movie does better than every other buddy comedy that tries to replicate this is those moments are real. That anger that Steve Martin has is real and you feel it building up. And I think you need a towel moment to have him explode. I also think knowing what we know of John Candy's character at the end of the film, he's not used to being with somebody else. He's not used to being in that situation sharing anymore. I think he's doing his normal routine. Uh, Oh, that's fair that he has not had to consider anybody else's needs for a very long time because he's only allowing the misconception that he still has a living wife. And as somebody who has been on tour around this country and stayed in very shitty hotels, especially when I was starting off, I'm going to tell you, there's not that many towels in those (laughs) shitty hotels. There are, it it is a a sad state of affairs. They're very sandpapery. I feel that towel. I remember being in one hotel that had a, um, a paper mat as the mat that you would stand on when you got out of the shower. So I've I've been wow. in shitty hotels. But I mean um, that you mean like the kind of ones where the only thing they give you to wash yourself with is the tiny like Andy's mint sized wrapped soap? Yes, yes. Oh, I've been there. I've been there. It's the worst. <laughs> but again, just to go back to this moment, like this moment of him exploding on him, I think that is again done for the audience. Like it's harsh. You have to be like, fuck you, Steve Martin. You have to come at him hard and you have to understand like, yeah, John Candy is a little bit of a mess. He talks too much. He maybe takes up too much space, but he's a good guy. And the audience needs to know that. And yes, he may have taken the towels, but he didn't do it to upset Steve Martin. Like the the way he spills beer all over the bed. He's like, he puts the money in to vibrate the bed and then the beer spills on the bed. Like, I don't think he's doing anything to fuck with him. And I think the movie needs to establish that. Like, that's me. I, I am this. I am a little, I know people have said this about me, but I am at my heart is pure. And I think we need to buy that because as the movie progresses and things go on, they're very much victims to the outside world. And I think this movie does a great job of having them both be uncomfortable. Like when they meet Dylan Baker, uh, you know, right there, like they're both the guy on their the heels. Yeah. Oh, the, the guy, guy with the truck. A ride. I mean, Dylan Baker <laughs> here, if you don't know Dylan Baker, I mean, Dylan Baker has been in everything. And this is one of my favorite performances on the brand new uh, 4K DVD and also on the iTunes. They've just updated it. You can see his audition for it. This like, uh, People train run out of Stubville. You know, it's like that. Like, like there's such a funny thing. Like they 
are alternately together in hating what they're going through and then hating each other. Like they, they do bounce off each other. And I think that there, I think that this movie is really good at constantly putting them at different odds, uniting them, you know, pulling them apart, putting them together, pulling them apart, putting them together. And I think that that scene really sets the tone for the rest of the movie. And I hear what you're saying. Like it's a little bit, maybe too schmaltzy or too emotional, but God damn it. I love it. And it makes me feel for John Candy. And from here on in, I know that no matter what he does, he's a good guy and he's trying to be a good guy. And that's what I need to do because I can't hate him for being a slob. I can't hate him for fucking things up. I can't hate him for wrecking the car. I just know that he's a little bit of a bull in a china shop. And you need that, I think, justification, not just he's a goofy dummy. You know, I think, again, sorry to keep on belaboring this, other movies make the person just annoying as all hell, but he knows he's annoying He's not trying to be annoying and he's just trying to be a good guy. Well, okay. I'll agree that he knows he's annoying and that he's trying not to be annoying. But I do think sometimes he could try a little bit harder. I think, he, I think, I think he takes up all of the space that he, you know, like when he's, you know, consciously making a ton of noises in bed. he's doing that he knows he's doing he doesn't that. know he's doing i mean yeah, so again, his it's eyes a- are open okay all i'm gonna say is this <laughs> as someone who's been away a lot uh you when you shoot things or you go out of town you leave your your significant other and your family i do believe that you get caught up in these bad habits of just you like to hear your own noises like it like and i'll i'll admit to it like sometimes i'll just I don't, I'm not a person to like burp that much in public, but if I'm alone, like I will, it's like, I don't know if it's just making a noise to be like, I'm here. I'm acknowledging like it's, (laughs) I I think there's a really interesting thing. The twist at the end, you know, that John Candy's wife has been dead for, you know, eight years. Like, I don't think you can just break out of that. If, If these are two married men, you know, this is a guy who just lives on the road by himself. And I think what I love about this is, You know, in in this new world, you'd have Steve Martin on his phone the entire time, right? Like just looking at his phone, disconnecting. And and we have John Candy, who is constantly connecting with people, finding ways to connect because he hasn't he doesn't have that. And there's this way that he kind of gloms on to Steve Martin. And I think it's I think it's like, yes, he wants to help him, but it's also he just wants companionship. And I think he's wrestling with being alone and and also you know, you can't just break these habits. Again, you, this hotel room I, 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 I scene is tricky. I am right now by how much you are identifying with John Candy. And I find oh, it yeah. very touching. No, very I, touching I, I love that because, character. I love that character. It's, it's... I mean, I'm uncomfortable with how much I identify with Steve Martin. You know, the part, like, the long stretch in which Steve Martin just finds himself suffocated by the pressure of trying to be nice and suppressing himself, keeping all of his like emotions inside, which is something I think is so striking even about the beginning of this film, that this is a film where it starts in silence. It starts in this boardroom for like two minutes of silence as he's just sitting there watching this like boss in New York, look at his art, not talking to him. He needs to leave. He needs him to say something. And it is so quiet. And they're just with the way Steve Martin's looking around, being like, I have a flight. 
the tension of the silence there is unreal. Where like a chair squeak is a big deal. By the way, best post-credit scene in the movie too. You know when they call back to that oh, guy yeah. still looking at the art on Thanksgiving Day, still just still. deliberating. And it, 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 I love. I mean, did John still. Hughes create the first, uh, you know, MCU kind of post-credit scenes? I'm gonna say yes, he did. Um, <laughs> still, but but what this movie is kind of structurally is like a man who's used to living in a world where people aren't talking you know, and aren't saying how Mm -hmm. they feel and what they need so much. And then he's around somebody who just like talks all the time and sort of makes him find his voice and fight back. I just identify with this as a person who's like very bad at confrontation and watching it, you know, and then tends to handle it wrong because I get so stressed out about confrontation. And this movie in part being about that, you know, John Candy kind of leaning in, here's the problem. Let's do this. I need this. Can I have this? And being a person who actually knows how to deal with unpleasant scenarios through talking through them and me really recognizing the Steve Martin, Neil Page in me, where it's just like, I'm either suffocating. No, everything's fine. We're fine. Oh, you took all the towels. I won't say a thing, a single thing about it until you like go off and then do something like, explode at Edie McClurg on the rental counter. Welcome to Marathon. May I help you? Yes. How may I help you? You can start by wiping that fucking dumbass smile off your rosy fucking cheeks. Then you can give me a fucking automobile, a fucking Datsun, a fucking Toyota, a fucking Mustang, a fucking Buick, four fucking wheels and a seat. I really don't care for the way you're speaking to me. And I really don't care for the way your company left me in the middle of fucking nowhere with fucking keys to a fucking car that isn't fucking there. And I really didn't care to fucking walk down a fucking highway and across a fucking runway to get back here to have you smile at my fucking face. I want a fucking car right fucking now. But I think there's a difference there, right? Because I think he's being mean to John Candy, and I think he's expressing his anger at the rental. Like he's not being mean to the rental clerk person. He's I mean, he, he is being of, aggressive. I mean, yeah. but he's not being personally attacking. And I think that right. there's a difference. He, okay. I do think that there's a difference, and I think that there's an emotional growth there. Like he's From not passive you know, aggressive to aggressive. Well, he's not being passive aggressive to John Candy. I think he's being incredibly mean to John Candy as a human being. He's not saying, hey, you didn't let me have the towels. He's saying, you're a terrible person. You are a bad person and I don't like you. But only after the passive aggressiveness explodes. Okay, I'm just saying- He keeps it in. I'm interested in how he keeps it in and then explodes. Yes, I just think that the, I think that the moment of growth in this movie is- him exploding to a random person, but not being mean. It's finally him showing his ultimate frustration. This is the reason why this is an R-rated movie. The movie is family-friendly, except for this one scene where he is at his wit's end. His car isn't there. He's got to walk three miles back to the airport because the bus has left him stranded in a parking lot. Everything is built up to this moment. And I think... This explosion is, I mean, I would put this up as one of the great scenes in cinema in many respects. (laughs) I mean, the dark counterpoint, though, is like he explodes and yelling at people does not get you anywhere. Doesn't get him anywhere. 
Like this expression of anger does not help. Any actually has to be slightly more like Dell. Use a little bit of charm even when he's but, angry. But he doesn't realize that because he has that moment. She's like, you're fucked. And then, and then he goes right outside and picks a fight with the taxi stand guy to which he gets <laughs> punched in the face and then grabbed by the nuts. Like, this is the moment where his character is, full, like, he is, his anger is out. It's fully out for the world to see. It's not private anymore. It's at everyone. Everyone's a fucking asshole. And he is so mad at it. And it just keeps on, like, Punch, he keeps on trying to punch somebody else and punching himself in the face. You know, not literally, but like the, <laughs> every time his anger comes out, it just, it takes him down a peg. And, I, and maybe it is these moments. I, I think that the, the guy grabbing him by the balls is also just a really like, it's, there's something about that scene so harsh. Like you feel like when he scoops him up. And I know this movie like plays in these moments of being really, like big and broad and also incredibly grounded. Um, yeah, that mix of like the realistic and the mundane, the, oh no, there's no towels for me, but then also taxi cab driver, driver grabbing him by the crotch. Yeah, picking him up by the crotch. But I, I think you're, I think we're onto something here about, you know, anger and misplaced anger on a certain level. Yeah. Uh, and maybe the world is better, you know, with, approaching it in the Dell way. Like it's a little sloppier. It's like not perfect, but you accept people and you, if you expect the best of people or you appreciate people, I mean, you'll get more with, you know, uh, honey than you will with vinegar. And I think that that's Del Griffith's whole thing. Like because of the relationships that he has created, because of the way he approaches people, because, you know, his idea to get them money with the shower curtain uh, ring earrings. It's like, he is... He is a good salesman. He's a good salesman, but he's a good person. He connects to people. And, and you know, maybe this is something that John Hughes as an adult is also kind of going through as well, where it's like, you know, it's so easy to get jaded uh, and cut off in the world. And we are in that time all the time. Like, why connect? Why, why is there a reason? I can stay in my own little sphere. I can be texting with my friends. I can be locked off from everything else. And maybe the only person that he connects to is John Candy, but that's a win. Like, you know, he doesn't have to be a traveling salesman, but he does finally like open his heart. He does actually think about somebody. The end of this movie is the realization like, oh, wait a second. Hold on. I haven't thought about this person. And he puts all the clues together. And this is something I hate in movies. Like when you flash back to scenes that we just saw, but I hate that it's too. done. In, I, I, yeah, me too. It's it, it's the worst. But Especially in like this five movie, minutes earlier, like, Use yeah. the force. I mean, okay, I'm just using a random example. That's a joke, but yeah. <laughs> but yes, but like this moment of him thinking, wait a second, I haven't thought about this person. I've been with this person for three days now or two days or whatever he's been with him for. And I haven't really thought about him. And the minute he like takes a moment to think about the world outside of his own thing, that's the most powerful moment of the entire movie. Well, it's so funny. I mean, because like the story of, just that shot, you know, of of Steve Martin thinking about John Candy for the first time was something that was like absolutely uh, not even just unscripted, unplanned, unconsidered at the time that footage was shot. Because the way that John Hughes envisioned the story ending was like, 
John Candy, still not getting the point by the time they make it back to Chicago, following Steve Martin home in a cab and bursting into his Thanksgiving dinner. And then finally, at the end of shooting the movie, John, John Hughes was like, oh, it's just too much. Like, then you really think that John Candy is the problem. You know, if he's right. like stalking this guy. So he's like, how can I do it? I need, I need Neil to like invite him home. I need Neil to put this together and invite him home. But he didn't have that footage. He hadn't shot that. And he had done this thing to Steve Martin during the filming of this movie where, you know, I mean, there's a reason why John Hughes wrote 25 movies for John Candy and he didn't write 25 movies for Steve Martin. He felt that Steve Martin as an actor was really reserved and that he couldn't kind of get underneath his 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 kind of protective layer. And so as John Hughes is shooting this entire movie, he's watching Steve Martin really closely looking for a moment when he can catch Steve Martin off guard, where Steve Martin is not putting on this kind of like guarded exterior. Couldn't find one, couldn't find one. And then one day they were shooting a a scene on a train and he was watching Steve Martin in between takes as Steve Martin was kind of preparing his lines for his next scene. And it was only in that moment he noticed that Steve Martin considered himself sort of alone and he let his guard down and he turned the camera on and he recorded Steve Martin preparing for his next scene And that is the take he used for this. He just had it already recorded, realized he needed a scene of Dell thinking and used this moment of Martin that he had captured. That's part of why it's so zoomed in is it wasn't even supposed to be this scene. And like there wasn't even snow outside. It wasn't set up for it. And he had to zoom in and capture his expression. So that's real Martin Real Martin feeling real emotions that are like, what's my next line? What's my next line? It's so funny you say that because I was watching that scene. I was like, wow, what, what... beautiful, subtle work Steve Martin's doing because you see him reliving the movie and it's it's gentle and it's real. And wow, I love that that was not improvised, but that, that was really Steve Martin. And this is what I'm saying is like this Steve Martin character, I think is very close to Steve Martin and, and that journey that he gets and that those natural smiles, those natural like remembrances and laughs are... You're right. He's with his guard down. I love that. I love that scene. And you know that they, I, I, I realized they probably didn't have all the right footage because the train going back into the station is just a reverse shot of the train pulling out of the station. If you look at it, you so clearly just <laughs> backwards. Um, but that moment of the two of them looking at each other for the first time and, and John Candy sitting there alone, jacket off, no place to go is... This movie is very heartbreaking. I think that's one of the best things of John Hughes films is like, he's not afraid to go there. He's not afraid to have a movie. We talked about this during Home Alone where you can feel something deeper. Like you can, you can have a real moment, a, a real, like a cry. Like you can have a cry in a John Hughes movie. I think one of the loveliest decides is kind of towards the end when we're just with Candy alone as he's talking to his dead wife, as he's having kind of this like open emotional moment that's just him. Well, Marie, once again, my dear, you are as right as rain. I am without a doubt the biggest pain in the butt that ever came down the pike. I meet someone whose company I really enjoy. What do I do? I go overboard. 
I smother the poor soul. I cause him more trouble than he has a right to. God, I got a big mouth. How <sighs> am I ever gonna wake up? But I have a question for you because I only realized in prepping for this episode that I wonder if I've misinterpreted this film my whole life because I always thought the ending was like his wife's dead. He doesn't have a, a nice home to go to, but I'm sure he has like an apartment. I'm sure he has like a place that's just sort of cold and maybe he only has a TV dinner that, you know, that's all it is. But in prepping for this episode, I came across this theory that like what's in the trunk is just literally everything he's ever owned and that he is homeless and that in this scene when he says i don't have a home it's literal i don't have a home marie's been dead for eight years i thought they were talking about the difference between like a house and a home you know that you can have a house but not have a home but Is he actually a person who doesn't have anywhere to live at all? Like, is he actually completely unhoused? I think he is unhoused, but not like in a way that he can't afford it. But there's no reason, there's no place for him to go because he's untethered. You know, once his wife died, he's untethered. Like, he has money. He's going around the country as a traveling salesman. That's what he does. He stays in hotels. He meets people. He talks to people. And this actually ties into something. I just got Steve Martin's uh, new book, Number One is Walking, and it's called uh, My Life in the Movies and Other Diversions. And it's all um, graphically drawn. I wouldn't say it's a graphic novel as much as it is like uh, a New Yorker cartoonist by the name of uh, Harry Bliss basically takes Steve Martin's stories about working on every one of his films and animates them, um, draws them. And Steve Martin talks about this last line of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles Which he said, he goes, at the end of the movie, John's character explained our friendship. And the line was, I sort of attach myself to people from time to time, but this time I just couldn't let go. Every time John said that line, I wept off screen. The line was cut, but the ending still worked. When I saw the movie with an audience, they wept too. And I love that idea that like, this is a guy who, this is what he does. He find somebody, you know, doesn't maybe share everything, travels with them and then, and then leaves them. And that's such a, I mean, I think they do that. You get everything that you need to get through a lot of quiet moments in this movie, a lot of silences. Like you talked about that in the beginning, but even with John Candy, it's like, you don't need him to say all of that. But I love this idea that he's been searching for someone, someone to, take care of him or someone to be his companion. And it, it makes it a sadder film. But yeah, I, I think I always assumed there was no place to go. Like he was, he wasn't going to Chicago because he needed to go to Chicago. He was going to Chicago because that's where Neil was going. Can I be the cynic for a second? Mm-hmm. Yeah, please. I think this ending is sad and I can't find a ton of hope in it. Because I don't know what happens to these guys after the fact. I don't know if they're ever going to hang out again after this Thanksgiving. You know, I don't know if Steve Martin 
is ever going to permanently be a different person. And I say this identifying so much with Steve Martin's character, not thinking he's a bad person and and liking these little moments where you kind of see his, where you see Dell's influence on him when like he gets on the train and he starts talking to a teen girl who's reading her magazine and wanting to connect to people. I see him wanting to connect to people, but I don't know how much I believe that this movie believes that he will absorb a lesson of going with the flow as Dell keeps telling him. Because also Dell's able to go with the flow because like Neil is paying for everything. If you're broke, you can't go with the flow. Um, and so I don't know what happens after this. I almost feel like the ending of this movie is very abrupt, but it kind of has to be abrupt, I suppose, because anything else after this point would be a, probably a lie. Well, probably not a lie that would into, make it feel falser than it does. Well, they're not going. I don't think that they have to figure it out more than he's not alone this Thanksgiving. And maybe to have something, to have an anchor somewhere with somebody who actually knows his truth, that he doesn't have a home, that he is rudderless, because that's where John Candy's veneer drops. Like, John Candy isn't going around telling everybody his wife is dead. I don't think anybody knows his wife is dead, except for Steve Martin. And maybe the best-case scenario is he finally has a port to dock his ship. Whether or not, I don't think he's going to move in with them. I don't think it's going to be anything larger, but it's it's a permanent relationship from a man who hasn't been able to create a permanent relationship. And that could just be a phone call. That could be a, a, a visit every couple of months. It could be something. And I think that that is the growth that we're kind of looking for, or at least that I would hope that friendship could take. I mean, I think what it is going to be is like the next time there's a snowstorm in Chicago, John Candy will tell his seatmate on that plane, hey, I know a guy with a nice house. Let's go on your couch. That's By the what's way, yeah. happen. Yeah. But I mean, but I think that there, but even to have somebody that knows you, that someone who sees you, I, I think it's really, I think it's really beautiful. He's rushing home to family, Steve Martin, the entire time. And, you know, he's just trying to get there to be there. But uh, along the way, he doesn't want to share any of that light with anybody else. Now, I do want to talk about something here. What the fuck is up with him and his wife? Oh, for real. I mean, this is, I don't know, this script was 145 pages. John Hughes is like, we're shooting all of it. This movie, if you've done any research on it or know anything about it, was plagued by everything that happens in the movie. I mean, flight delays, weather issues. They were chasing snow all around the country. They improvised so much, they were running out of film reels. If you watch some of these deleted scenes or extended scenes that are on the, the new DVD, it's they are hilarious. It's just long, funny takes. Like Steve Martin and uh, John Candy in the airport. And John Candy's like, you want to go get a beer and some burgers? He's like, no. He's like, a couple of beers. No. He's like, toffees? No, he's like sourdough bread. I got the best sourdough bread guy. Like it's just like it's <laughs> it's great that they cut it all down, but um, but I guess like what I what I really respond to the wing that that seems so weird here. It seems like a remnant of another movie is this strained relationship with Steve Martin and his wife. Why she's so concerned? She's like, is everything okay? What's going on? Like as if like has he been cheating on her? She's reacting in a way like he's lying, and it seems so clear like my flight got delayed I'm on my way home and then when she comes down the stairs in this kind of regal moment and she's like oh, that backlit halo angel tone that and this, she's like this actress Lila Robbins presume? is like descending from the heavens on those carpeted stairs and she says it like she 
response to Del Griffith, like, you're the man. You're the man that my husband's been. Like, I don't know what the fuck is going. I can't read this moment. It well, just it's seems like a Mona so Lisa, weird. Right? She's got this Mona Lisa smile on her face. And it's like the movie, the music, the everything. It's like it feels like you're supposed to be like, oh, thank God. And there's I felt a moment of thank God. What? What is it? What exactly is happening here? Part of what I read, I found an interview with that actress, with Lila Robbins. She said that um, she had a whole subplot of this movie that wound up getting cut out. We're like, oh, you're right. Where what was written on the page was that she really was supposed to think that Steve Martin's having an affair. Because I guess he okay. couldn't explain it better. You know, because like at all, because his whole story about why he wasn't home sounded so ludicrous that she was supposed to interpret that he just was making up all of these lies. And he was like really hooking up with some lady in a hotel room. By and the so, way, what a terrible time to hook up with your your side uh, yeah. your side piece uh, the day before Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's Labor your Day, man. Hey, you got it's a lot a of time to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Pick failed Columbus Day, which still existed back in this time period. You know, pick something. <laughs> um, but yeah, so she was directed to come down the stairs and play the scene as though she was almost weeping with relief to see John Candy and not some hot babe. That like she was worried her husband was going to come home with oh, some baby wow. he was cheating on her with. And when it's John Candy, she can just be relieved. And so she has that expression on her face and the tone and the sound and the music and the lighting is so much bigger than what you expect the moment to be. And it kind of makes me feel like, man, they're getting a divorce. Like, you know, like they're, yeah. that, that couple's not working out. It just feels to me like, like, again, this movie, I think there's a lot there. The original cut, the 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 first editor assembly. I'm not going to say director's cut because there was no direct. Like people say director's cut. Editor's assembly was like four hours. It was a wow. giant movie. And John Hughes cut it down. And, you know, what they've been able to say is like, oh, well, it wasn't like he wasn't able to release the four hour version. I think he was trying to find what this movie was. He knew he had a lot of stuff. He shot like three times uh, or twice the industry average, like that's 600,000 feet uh, of film, right? It's it's not like he ever intended on releasing that, but I think when you have a movie that big with these two guys, there's so much improvising. It's like, well, how do we, what is it? How do we get here? How do we push this together? And I think watching the extended scenes, it's like, oh, you just tightened everything. You made everything work Better, And I think that this movie could have been um, a lot broader. And I think we kept the broad moments to lighten it up. Like John Candy is the devil, you know, Steve Martin talking in the voice like, hey, my name, you know, when his voice is like that after he gets grabbed by the balls. (laughs) Like it's like he kept those moments. But it also I think he leaned into the the drama as well, because I think it could have been more like National Lampoon's Vacation. And when you think about the cast he was going to use, it was going to be like Tom Hanks and John Travolta. It was going to be uh, John Goodman as Del Griffith and Rick Moranis as Neil. Um, I actually think that Tom Hanks would have been too sweet at this point. I think that that you buy this. It's a perfect pairing. I don't know if this movie is as good if it isn't these two guys, because they are different. They're and especially coming off of seeing Steve Martin being so goofy, playing so straight and tapping into that. And John Hughes knowing I could tap into this. Like you gotta, you gotta be mad at Steve Martin at points. And I think he does a great job. It, it's really a, a great, I think it's a great Steve Martin performance too. It's, it's, it, it's not goofy at all. No. You know, what's weird though, if we're like digging into this whole idea of the edits is 
deleting some of these scenes and deleting some of these plot points does add to my confusion in the very latter half of this movie. Because there's that part where they're like driving from St. Louis to Chicago, right? And because I am a nerd, I really love to do things like be like, okay, wait, how far is it from St. Louis to Chicago when I looked it up? And it was like 300 miles. And I was like, okay, great. And then it seems to take them like 12 hours to get there, despite rental cars even being on fire. They're trading shifts back and forth, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, why is this 300 miles taking forever? And part of that is because they deleted a fact that then made it very confusing. Where, you know, when they get pulled over by the cop, by Michael McKean, the cop is supposed to tell them that they missed Chicago, that they drove past it by like 100 miles. So they're supposed to have gone like basically 100 miles out of their way one way and then have to go 100 miles back, adding 200 miles to this trip. They're supposed to be like accidentally in Wisconsin. And so the drive is taking even longer. But because they cut out that line, it just seems like like torturously slow. I'm like, is the speed limit 30 miles an hour? How is this going on? And I don't know why they edited that out except just to frustrate people like me who like to really calculate, you know, if the driver is going at 65 miles an hour in the <laughs> 80s and that was the speed limit before they raised it, why is this taking so long? Well, I mean, you also can just, there's also little subtle jokes in the movie as well. Like uh, when Neil's wife is watching the TV, it's like, oh, oh, hair is cleared up at this point, which oh, means yeah. that if he just waited for the plane, he would have been home in time. Like he didn't have to leave the airport. He didn't have to. Well, I guess, yeah. I guess, uh, you know, it got canceled. I mean, gosh, yeah, he would have gotten knows? on the canceled flight. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but one of the like deleted scenes also too that they deleted, which I find so frustrating is like they deleted a scene um, where they're on the airline, you know, the first time around, right. the very first flight. And the airline is serving them and they have this whole back and forth about how Steve Martin doesn't want to eat his lasagna because he thinks it's burnt and blah, blah, blah. And John Candy is telling him, oh, you never order the lasagna. You get this on this airline. I get the seafood salad. And then he starts giving away Steve Martin's food to like the old man sitting next to them. Sir, excuse me. Would you like a bun? No, it's fun. Flight's fun. No, no. <laughs> Would you like the bun? I'm offering you a bun. Speak up. You want the bun? No, I just got started. He said, do you want the bun? Oh, yes. Thank you. <laughs> there you Thank go. You. How about another salad? No, 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 no. Take this salad. He doesn't want any. He's not hungry. Some salad dressing. I'd like the brownie. The brownie? No, sure. No, I'd like that. You want the brownie? He won't give you the brownie. He's got a sweet tooth. <laughs> I can't help when I watch the scene, but feel like, man, John Hughes in the 80s was like, Air travel sucks. And I'm like, man, I wish they gave you food now. On a tiny flight like that, New York, Chicago, just flying in coach. And in coach. Feeding you your choice of meal. Man, things have gotten so much worse. I mean, I remember that. I remember those flights. But I'll tell you this much. I think also it just shows like the upper crusty version of him because like you see like he's so mad that he can't sit in first class. And, and you know, that whole moment, like, like this is such a great indignity to him. Yeah. You know, it's like, indignity it makes him, is the word. Yeah. You know, it's, it's such a fun, it, I think that they do a great job of making him a guy who doesn't think he is high maintenance, but is incredibly high maintenance. Um, I do want to point out one other thing too. We, you talked about that beautiful scene of the of his wife coming down, and, and we often cut to Neil's house, and we get the feeling that Neil's pretty well off. Like, I mean, his house is beautiful. It looks like the Home Alone house, but with yeah, way does. less kids in it. Um, that house cost seven hundred thousand dollars to build. 
uh, for the film. Seven, and the studio is like, what? What do you need this for? Like, and when you think about how the how it's used, it's only used in like flash fo- imaginary flash forwards and some phone conversations. But they built this giant ass house just for that. So it does feel like you can see the studio freaking out about this movie because it takes forever to shoot this house that is seven rooms and five months to build. You know, it's like, what is going on here? Like, what is like, what is this movie? Can it ever hold up? And I think that they've finally realized it could, but I could also understand if in the gossip world of Hollywood at that time, like what's going on with John Hughes, his only movie without teens is going over budget and overboard and it's still shooting. And, and it seems like everything about it should be bad. But I also feel like, because he shot this much, he was able to actually craft, like it's almost like he bought a giant block of marble and crafted it to this movie based on these characters, performances and everything. I mean, one actor was um, on hold so much. He had a one day scene that he's on hold for the entire movie that he actually bought a house because he like, you know, they, they'll buy you out for the whole film, but they, they just kept on extending him, extending him, extending him. So he had enough money at the end just to buy a house. Oh, and I hope that actor today is in the comment section of articles about the housing crisis being like, I don't know what's wrong with you kids these days. I was able to buy a house just from a couple <laughs> days on planes, trains and automobiles. It costs uh, $70,000. And it's, oh my yeah. gosh. Anyway, sorry, I read too many comment sections on the New York Times. Um, by the way, speaking of cultural commenting, the scene that kind of breaks my heart in this movie is when they're on the bus and Steve Martin's like, I will open my heart up. I will try to be one of the people. We're singing? Okay, let's oh, sing. And yes. no one, no one will sing with him. Who's got a song? I got one. Uh... You got one. Neil Page has got one. Three coins in a fountain, each one seeking happiness. You know this, seeking happiness. Thrown by three hopeful lovers, no? Flintstones, meet the Flintstones. They're the modern family. From the town of Bedrock, they're a page right out of... Oh, I love, I love, love, love that scene because it is... We've all been in that moment, right? Like he's just, he is willing to give in to something, you know? And, and again, every time he tries, he just, he just falls on his face in that moment. And then when John Candy sings the Flintstones theme and everyone jumps in, it's just like, you feel it. You feel feel it it. so hard. I feel that one so hard. It's, it really hurts. It really hurts. We can all get in our own way. And there's a great moment in the movie right after that when they sell all the curtain ring earrings where it should be a triumphant moment. We got our money. We're going to now figure out our next step. And Steve Martin gives that speech. He's like, when we put our heads together, it really doesn't work. And it's like that moment, (laughs) like that idea of always trying to find a way out, disconnect, you know, go on your own. You know, we have somebody who is on their own. The politeness of it. I'm holding you back. Yes. It's such an interesting thing because I think that we all have a tendency to do that. Like this idea of like, I, I'll i be better off by myself. And I think we have somebody that we don't know at this point, like John Candy, who is uh, is by himself often going, no, no, we're better together. And it's and this thing of like, can we be open? Can we go with the flow? And a great thing to think about during this holiday season as we all kind of interact with family members go to airports, deal with everybody's own issues with masks and not masks. It's like, 
can we just not fight against the current? Can we just be a little bit more Dell in our lives? I think that, especially when it comes to traveling, Dell, a Dell attitude is the way to be. And I'm very much a Neil when I travel, but you know, I think it's important to like remind ourselves of this, like around the dinner tables in those situations when someone's hacking up a lung next to you on an airplane and not wearing a mask, it's like, can we just, can we just open ourselves just a little bit? Are you saying that you think there's little bits of this movie that could heal America? Because, I do. Because I will agree with you in a few scenes. Like one of the scenes that I find very affecting is early on when they like land in Wichita and they're driving around in Doobie's Taxiola and they're going on a tour, and the Garfield stickers and naked ladies and whatever in this taxi cab. And John Candy has that line, he's proud of his town. That's a damn rare thing these days. I like that moment a lot. In, I mean, not just in the idea of being proud of your town, but also Wichita is a really lovely place. And if people have never been there and they've only seen this movie, I adore Wichita. I think it's a really, really cool town. And I like John Candy saying like, we can be proud of our towns. I mean, especially in a, in a town right now where you talk about like the red and blue of it all. Mm-hmm. I think this movie does capture that energy. It was like, you know what? Like, let's embrace everything has got some, everybody's got something to offer. Let's bring it together. By the way, also, as we're talking about like traveling around and visiting these small towns and how they shot this movie in a lot of the small towns, one of my favorite archival clips I found researching this episode was from the local news in Buffalo, which by the way, John Candy has a really interesting history of Buffalo that I'll talk about in a second. Um, But when they're in Buffalo, the local news is so excited that they're shooting this movie that the newscaster to to get John Candy to hang out with him and do an interview for their local news has this experience. It's no secret that John Candy is in town working on a new movie with Steve Martin. It's also no secret that dedicated broadcast journalists will do just about anything to get an exclusive interview. John was getting his hair permed this morning for his role in the movie and agreed to talk with us as long as I got my hair permed, too. And I appreciate that. That's kind of you to actually get your hair done with me. It, It should be fun. John candidly admits that he's still a bit starstruck by big names like Steve Martin. Sure, absolutely, you know. And then you meet him and you realize, you know, he's, he's not real funny at all. And, uh... Before our hair-raising interview came to a close, John couldn't resist giving the salon a plug. So all the people in Buffalo, come on down to Crimper's today. You too can look just like this. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's a good uh, hairstyle. He, I mean, he looks very eighties at the end. That that newscaster, it's like sticking up. He kind of has a has a has a. She blinded me with science vibe. I mean, I like <laughs> it. I, I think it is a good good look. Yeah, um, but, uh, but part of John Candy's history with Buffalo, which I want to say really fast, is when he was in high school. You know, and he graduated high school like in the Vietnam era. John Candy had no idea what he really wanted to do with his life. He was pretty lost, and so. What he did is one of his friends and him, they got in the car, they decided to drive to Buffalo from Canada to apply to join the Marines because John Candy as a teenager was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. Maybe if I join the Marines, I'll get in shape, even if I'll be in Vietnam, a lot of people are dying, but maybe maybe this will give my life direction. I feel really lost. So they drive to Buffalo. The Marines rejects John Candy because he has a bad knee from a football injury that he from when he played football in high school. So he doesn't join the Marines. They're pretty depressed. But it's on this road trip scene that John Candy's friend has ratted him out and saying, oh, yeah, that pillow scene where two guys share a bed and they're like, where are your hands? That happened to me and John Candy on this trip where he was going to enlist in the Marines. Dell. Why did you kiss my ear? 
Why are you holding my hand? Where's your other hand? Between two pillows. Those aren't pillows. See that Bears game last week? Yeah, hell of a game, hell of a game. Bears got a great team this year. They're gonna go all the way. Oh, yeah! Wait, so the another iconic scene is based in real life. It is based in real life. And I want to talk about that scene in a little bit because, you know, the lowest hanging lamest jokes in a lot of comedies from like, especially 80s, especially 90s, especially early 2000s are these kind of gay panic jokes. Mm-hmm. And I feel like my heart always stops in this in this moment because I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't just be like da da da. The punchline is like, we did something that makes us question our sexuality. I appreciate that at least this moment takes the scene far enough to make the joke not about the moment, but on them freaking out about the moment and then overcompensating for the moment and being like, we're so heterosexual, we're going to talk about football and making them their ultra male bears thing. Making yes, that I, the punchline. I totally get what you're saying. And I guess I never read that scene as being incredibly like, a gay panic joke because it just seems to me like the intimacy of two men in the bed. It's not like, Oh, we don't want to be gay. It's like, we don't know what to do because we just shared like an, like an, like we were comfortable doing this. Like we were very comfortable doing this and we were, we were okay with it. Like, I think that there's something really funny about them not being like, Oh my gosh, I don't want to be viewed as gay, but more like, they were so happy. Like they both like that moment is like the only moment that they seem happy when they are both asleep <laughs> until they wake up. And I think there's something just really funny about it. But I hear what you're saying like it it walks a line and I think it does like it does rebound great. Yeah. Um, from there. Also, by the way, while we're talking about cliches of this type of film from this type of period, you might say. This is weird. It's a film from this time period where the men didn't go to a strip club for no reason. And the truth is, they did. They did go to a strip club in this movie. That scene just got deleted. I mean, I think it's impossible for any movie of this time period not to go to a strip club for some fucking reason, which, of course, happens. By the way, I just really want to play all of this back to back for my own amusement. One of the things that I believe maybe hasn't aged well, but has aged amusingly in this movie is the soundtrack, the like funky, funky soundtrack. And I just want to play for my own amusement, how the, how the different scores that they use for the different forms of transportation in this movie. I want to hear funky airport. I want to hear funky train. I want to hear funky bus song. I want to hear the funky car music song. And I want to hear the funky, lovely walking home.
Oh, and and we have to hear funky Dell scratch rapping over the credits too. Del Griffith. Del Griffith. Del Griffith. Del Griffith. I can take anything. You ever hear the Dragnet rap with Tom Hanks and Dan Aykroyd rapping? See that streamet, we're just in time. We have stumbled into a major crime. They got the girl off right. Now that's not nice. I think she is the subject of a sacrifice. Buddy, we're putting this party on ice. But don't you know we really ought to read them their rights? Read them their rights. Read them their rights. Oh, man. A movie that does go to a strip club. Do they in that? I mean, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is a formative trauma in my life is having that movie on with my parents in the living room and then they go to a strip club. I mean, well, now, I guess my only I guess my final question to you, Amy, is, you know, we talked about how some of these things were based in true stories. My big question is, in your research, did you find any information on John Hughes ever getting in the back of a truck? Because now in Home Alone and in this movie, uh, at a certain point, uh, a main character is uh, basically allowed to sit in the back of a refrigeration truck uh, or just a truck in general. I mean, it, it really does seem like an odd <laughs> spot. Like, I think they've run out of vehicles at that point to get them into. But uh, it seems like they have calmed their way in when they could easily have fit probably in the main car. Well, you know, what's fascinating. I was thinking about this because a friend and I were talking about the Fablemans and they're like, man, mm-hmm. you watch the Fablemans and it's sort of the story of like, how Steven Spielberg comes to be. And at the end of it, you're like, yeah, Steven Spielberg hasn't had a ton of life experience. And sometimes I wonder that about directors who become successful fairly young and they're like 20s and 30s. Or, you know, Kevin Smith has talked about it. Like, I became famous so young for doing Clerks that I didn't have a ton of life experience about stuff to make stories about other than this one time that I worked here. And also I hung out at this mall. And then it's like, I don't know, then my life got pretty easy and I was wealthy and I didn't have a lot of things happen to me that are relatable to other people. Sometimes I wonder that about John Hughes in this period of his life, because he became famous pretty young and he like minds his high school stories, does it really well, makes a hit about it. And he's like, I don't know. I had a bad flight once and I'm going to squeeze several movies out of this because he hasn't had that. You know, what else happened? He like then he like had a he settled down and things were fine. And I wonder like how desperate he might have felt for material, especially when you're a guy who writes like what a script in three days, four days, the way that he claimed to do? Like, how does he keep the ideas going when like one awful car ride turns into several movies? Well, but at the same time, several movies that are completely different. I don't want to poo-poo John Hughes at all, because if you look at what he does in Home Alone and Planes, Trains, Automobiles, yes, travel is a part of it, but it's a very different story told in a very, very different way. I think John Hughes is a, a genius. I may have spoken about this in the Home Alone episode. I'll repeat it really quickly that a friend of mine worked for John Hughes, and he would just be writing scripts all the time. Well, not even with the intention to make them, even after he retired, uh, after being brutalized by Belushi on Curly Sue, he continued to write. It was what he loved to do. Like he wanted to write. He wasn't writing for any other reason than it was a passion of his. Like he had a bookcase that surrounded his entire office. And on top of the bookcase were all these scripts, scripts that never would see the light of day, scripts that he didn't even try to sell. It was just what he wanted to do. Three days to write this script. And obviously 145 pages in three days. He was said in one of the featurettes I watched on Plain Strange Automobiles, he said, I write quickly because I just talk out the movie. So in a, in a way he's saying like, I just... Yeah, it takes 90 minutes to make the movie. 
I'll write a script in 90 minutes, you know, essentially like that's why it takes such a quick time for him to do it. Like he's not, he's writing at the speed of the film on some level. I thought that was actually really fascinating. And, and, you know, he was saying like, I, once I see it, I know if it's a movie that I want to make, but I need to see it first. You mean Um, just go with the flow? Go with the flow. There we go. Anyway, I would go I mean, with the flow if I was with Del Griffith, I think. I think I would put up probably a little bit of a fight uh, at first. But would you go with the flow or would you get out of there? Oh, I'm, there's too much of a Martin streak in me. It's pretty rough. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to deal with it. But I, my worst personality trait is when something doesn't go my way, I get quietly huffy and I don't negotiate. I just sort of walk away. It's not great. Not healthy. Doesn't, right, I'm doesn't pay help you get, about doesn't that help here you get what you're hoping for. Um but by the way, while we're talking about great works of literature, you know that book that John Candy is reading at the very beginning oh, at the airport, the it. Canadian the Mountain? Novel, yeah. yeah. Yeah, which, you know, has been like cameoed in Deadpool 2. And um, somebody recently wrote a book kind of about like factoids about plane trains and automobiles, also called The Canadian Mountain. Um, that book found out that this thing that they always thought was a prop, you know, just some sort of made up book because like John Candy's from Canada and maybe it'd be funny was actually a real book that was actually published in 1981. So the Canadian Mounted, real book, impossible to find, but real book. But they did get um, a copy of it where they were able to see the back of the book. And do you know how this book is described? Please tell me. Let me read it to you. Northern Nympho. Anne-Marie is sexually very free. Throughout the land of Canada, many men have had her. Some are famous, some are shady, but they all admit She's one very horny lady. (laughs) I love it. Well, you know, Amy, I think this is a great duo, a great buddy road trip duo. But I I would actually like to continue down this path, if you will. Like, you know, we made a promise to each other a long time ago that there was one movie that neither of us had seen, but we should watch it together for the first time on the show. And I know you know I'm talking about. I do. We made a solemn vow. Yes, it's not Neil and Dell. It's Thelma and Louise. So next week, we will be watching a movie. You and I, for the first time, I just read Gina Davis's amazing autobiography where she talks about this movie. I think some plot points were spoiled because of it, but you know what? I still can't wait to watch it. Uh, and I'm so excited that we're going to both have this, this moment of an iconic film, a film that we probably should have seen, but we have not. You know, it's impossible to have seen everything what matters is, hey, I'm excited we get to watch it. The anticipation has been building in me for a long time. So I cannot wait to watch this movie. And we can finally put to rest which is the better duo. I mean, they both drive cars that uh, have a fiery demise. Uh, but uh, one <laughs> seems a little bit more permanent. All right. Uh, next week, it is Thelma and Louise. If you like Listening to Unspooled, well, you have a lot of people to thank. As a matter of fact, you can thank our producers, Josh Richmond and Devin Bryant, our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy. Kim Troxell does all of our fan art. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you rate and review us on Apple and Amazon or wherever you rate and review podcasts. Plus, you can follow us for the latest up to the minute discourse on Twitter and Instagram, but also on the Paul Shear Discord, where we host a very exclusive Unspooled chat. It's nice. It's fun. Social media. If you want an Unspooled t-shirt, go to tpublic.com slash unspooled. You can also check out Podswag for exclusive merch. Get back episodes of the show and bonuses like screen test if you subscribe to Stitcher Premium. And check out the official API, that's the Amy and Paul Institute list, at unspooledpod.com. Mm-hmm.